QuickMed Claims presents the Board and Collar 10Q30. We pose 10 questions to emergency medical service leaders from across the United States on key matters affecting EMS nationwide. You'll find their unique responses interesting and thought-provoking, all in 30 minutes. Your host, QMC's Director of Client Services, Gary Harbath. I can welcome you to 10Q30, 10, Q, 10 questions in 30 minutes. Let me tell you folks, I am extremely excited about our program today. Uh, we have some great representatives coming to us from the 2018 Association of Air Medical Services uh, Program of the Year. And joining us today is Krista Henderson. Krista is the Senior Director for Carillion Clinic Patient Transportation based out of Roanoke, Virginia. Uh, Carillion Clinic Patient Transportation is a private hospital-based ambulance system operating in southwestern Virginia and currently has a fleet of 42 ambulances. All of the ambulances are staffed and equipped as advanced life support, and they also have a dedicated neonatal pediatric transport team and Carillion Clinic lifeguard. Krista Henderson and uh, Haley Inman, who EM, did an EMS fellowship there, and she's going to talk a little bit about that. Um, are with us on today's program. A little bit about Krista. She's the Senior Director of CCPT. She's been with Carillion Clinic for 29 years, all of which has been in emergency services. God bless you, Krista. 29 years in emergency services. Uh, I hope you wrote a book because could, it could be a New York Times bestseller, I'm sure. Um, after graduating from Radford uh, University with her BSN, Krista started as an RN in the emergency department for Carillion Roanoke Memorial Hospital. CRMH is a magnet-designated 703-bed hospital that includes neonatal intensive care unit, Carillion uh, Children's Hospital, and the region's only level one trauma center. After five years in the ED, she was hired as a flight nurse. Uh, with Carillion Clinic Lifeguard and later, later promoted the team lead, where she served for nearly 10 years. Again, God bless you there, Krista, too. My goodness. Um, she left Carillion Lifeguard and accepted a new position as a trauma, uh, trauma service as the performance improvement coordinator, where she developed the quality and research programs for the service. Uh, during this time, Krista also uh, obtained her MSN from Jefferson College of Health and uh, she has also been involved in many things, including performance improvement coordinator. She's been the safety officer. And in 2012, she was promoted to senior director, providing leadership to air, ground, and EMS teams associated with CCPT. And Chris is also certified as a, a professional health, professional in healthcare quality and a certified medical transport executive, uh, CMTE. So ladies, I am so tickled to have both of you here. Thanks for taking time from your busy day. Uh, we're, we're delighted. Uh, I was telling one of my coworkers earlier today that um, I couldn't wait to do this because I, I'm truly, um, I've read a lot about your organization. I'm anxious to learn more, but it is a model organization, and I'm sure those who are joining us today are anxious to hear about it. So thank you both. Thanks, Gary. It's a pleasure to be here. So, um, great. Well, um, as the format goes, I have about 10 questions to ask Krista. Um, these are questions that are pretty much uh, widely known questions throughout the industry. And it's a good idea to kind of look outside the backyard to see how others are addressing problems that 
whether it be in Virginia or Pennsylvania or New York or California, um, are experiencing. So hopefully touch on that along the way and develops to see how Krista is addressing issues. Um, last month, we did Life Met Alaska. And um, it's funny, after we did that program, um, one of the gentlemen on the uh, 10Q called and said to me that others had contacted him about his presentation and about how he responded to some of the questions to kind of share more. So it developed a great, uh, great networking uh, format as well, too. And we hope that happens. So we're glad to bring it to you today. So without any further ado, I'm going to turn it over um, to these great people just by simply asking you, asking Krista, would you be kind enough just to give us a general program overview? I touched on a few things here, but um, I'm sure you uh, have much more that you'd like to add. So if you take a moment to do that, I'd appreciate it. Sure. So uh, we are uh, affiliated with uh, Carillion Healthcare System uh, out of um, uh, Roanoke, Virginia. Um, Carillion has about 13,000 total employees. Uh, in the transport network that uh, I manage, uh, we have uh, air services, which is rotor wing, uh, ground ALS, VLS. Uh, we manage one EMS contract. And then, as you said, we have the Neopedes team. So we uh, have about 220 employees total uh, that work for uh, our transport uh, organization. Uh, on the ground side, we've been around since about 1986. Uh, on the air side, we were uh, formed in 1981, and we were the first air program in Virginia. Um, so that's uh, uh, always kind of a part of, uh, of history. Um, one of the uh, newer things uh, that we have certainly enjoyed some of the partnership um, with our health system is that uh, Carillion partnered with uh, Virginia Tech uh, and started the Virginia Tech Carillion School of Medicine and Research Institute. Uh, and that uh, they accepted their first class of uh, medical residents or med students uh, back in uh, 2010. Uh, and so carillion has been around for a long time, but not necessarily in the academic medical arena. Uh, and so that's been a bit of a, a change uh, for us, I think, in many good ways, because we've tried to uh, benefit from um, some of the things that, uh, that they're doing as far as uh, research, uh, simulation, uh, and those types of uh, investments that the system has made. So our air division is CAMES accredited, uh, as uh, many are in the industry. Uh, we were CAMES accredited on the ground up until our last cycle, and we elected um, not to uh, renew that for ground. Um, and big part of that is for our ground division, uh, a lot of, I would say about 70 to 80 percent of those transports are, are basic life support. Uh, and so uh, we opted to uh, let that go. Um, but uh, like I said, we've been around for a long time. I think part of that uh, of our history is a willingness to change and always looking for how can we improve and what can we uh, do better. So um, the other piece uh, that, uh, that we've had people from all over the country come in and take a look at is uh, our co-located uh, dispatch center, uh, which is uh, in the same room, if you will, as our uh, transfer center. And uh, through that, we've picked up a lot of efficiencies in how patients are accepted and uh, given beds, and then certainly the transport piece uh, of that as well. So that's, uh, that's on site uh, here as well. Great. Well, thank you for that, that uh, overview. How about your staffing patterns for your uh, for lifeguard as well as the ground ambulance or ground ambulance? And how do you staff? Uh, what are your shifts look like? Uh, if you could kind of tell us a little bit more. Sure. So uh, on the helicopters, uh, we use a, um, a nurse and paramedic configuration. 
they do uh, combinations of 12-hour shifts and 24-hour shifts, uh, like many in the industry. Uh, at I would say back in 2012, uh, about the time I came into this role, uh, they had decided to eliminate 24-hour shifts and got a lot of staff pushed back. And uh, we ended up um, bringing back the 24-hour shifts with some uh, utilization parameters. So if uh, folks are utilized up to 18 hours, uh, that's okay. But at the 18-hour mark, we automatically pull them out of service uh, on their 24-hour shift. And we have an on-call team that comes in and assumes duty because at the end of the day, we just didn't want people um, having more than 18 hours of utilization. So they track that from the time uh, they get an hour uh, at the beginning of the shift for unit checkoff and the safety briefings. Uh, and then we track actual time on task, if you will, from the time the call's dispatched until the time they get back to base. And then we add on an hour for charting, which everybody loves that part. Uh, and uh, then if they do PR flights or other things, uh, that's included in their utilization. So the team's responsible for tracking that throughout the day. And then once they hit the 14 hour to 16 hour mark, uh, they go ahead and notify the on-call team uh, and so that we don't go out of service uh, related to the shift. So that was, a, that was an exercise in trying to find the middle ground, uh, trying to keep our, our employees happy, but also to make sure that uh, we were doing right by our patients in terms of, of safety as well. Sure. On the ground side, uh, our teams work combinations of 12, 13 hour, and 12, 13 and 14 hour shifts. We're trying to eliminate some of the longer shifts, the 13, 14 hour shifts, and get everybody uh, either on eights or, or 12s. Uh, and that's just because utilization in some of our ground divisions is um, 86 to 90%. So they are busy. Uh, and in the hot, humid Virginia summers, um, that takes a toll. So uh, we're looking at some opportunities to change that around. Uh, and then our, our Neopedes team works uh, 12 hour shifts um, for, for that service. I see. Krista, I'm going to kind of digress here for just a second. Uh, I have not seen this, but folks who, my colleague at QuickMed, have uh, told me that um, I need to put seeing your dispatch center on my bucket list. Um, because they said it's quite the place. Would you be kind enough to just kind of give us, a, a help us draw a visual picture of, of how you're set up and how your dispatch center works? Sure. Um, and I was hoping to have some pictures today to be able to share, but uh, I wasn't quite that, uh, that savvy with the, the technology yet, uh, so maybe next time. Um, but uh, so in the past, uh, our transfer center was managed inside of the hospital, uh, and we used to call it Fort Knox because no one could get in, and I'm not sure anybody could get out uh, of that. And then we had our dispatch center kind of separately um, on site a few blocks away. And so there wasn't um, maybe great communication between the two. And what would happen is a sending physician, for example, would call into the transfer center and tell the story, work through the process uh, to get a physician and then to get a, a bed. Uh, and it was multiple phone calls. And then the final phone call was kind of starting over where they're calling our dispatch center saying, hey, I need a helicopter or I need an ambulance. And they're having to tell the story again. And uh, so there, we lost a lot of time in that. And in talking to uh, customers, they were like, it's, you know, we love sending patients to your system, but it's so frustrating trying to get somebody accepted there. So uh, we uh, began working on that, uh, and senior leadership of the hospital was involved as well. And we said, you know, it just doesn't make sense to have them in two separate buildings. It would make a lot more sense to have them in the same room 
where uh, as the call comes in, the transfer center nurse can easily flag maybe the flight follower to say, hey, this is a STEMI at a certain facility. Uh, do we have an aircraft available? So we can go ahead now and be in the works uh, getting the transport piece uh, while the call is, while they're waiting on the, the receiving doctor to even come on the line to accept the patient. So that saved tremendous amounts of time. It's been a huge um, uh, win for facilities, for physicians, because uh, they can make one call and have all of their needs taken care of uh, with that. So I don't know the square footage, but it's a large, uh, large room where they're located in. There's, um, I would say, probably 12 to 15 uh, computer stations. Half of that is the transfer center nurses who are working on the physician acceptance in the bed, and the other half of the room is our dispatch center, which is our flight followers and ground dispatchers and schedulers uh, working on that. Uh, it is sensory overload. There are huge uh, big screens everywhere, which has some of our GPS tracking. It has weather, uh, all kinds of 60-inch uh, of, of big screen uh, monitors. Uh, so they have really good communication on the kind of behind the, the teams are the supervisor pods uh, where they're trying to keep an eye out. So if they hear something on one side of the room that could affect the other side of the room, then they're trying to jump on that and, um, you know, intervene uh, if needed. Um, but uh, it, is a, it is quite uh, an interesting operation. Well, I have to come and see that. And I asked that question specifically because uh, prior to assuming this position that I have today, I spent 28 years in Pittsburgh healthcare, and one of my responsibilities was um, the communication center for our air, our air medical program, which is Life Flight based out of Allegheny General in Pittsburgh. And I also developed a non-emergency transport dispatcher. dispatcher. It doesn't sound any, you know, that was in the 80s, and it doesn't sound anything like what you're describing. So, I'm actually salivating a little bit. I've got to get down there to see that place. So I'll surely come to see you, Krista, but I really want to come and see your dispatch center, if the truth be known. And I think Becker Emman wanted to chime in on that too. Yeah, if you've ever seen movies that depict the inside of NASA or the CIA or some other high-level organization, that's kind of what it looks like. There are multiple screens they all show different things they're all 60 inches plus and there's people with headsets on typing furiously and talking to each other via microphone so it's exactly like that i think i've got to find a good reason to get to roanoke <laughs> come on gary anytime yeah we'll do that we'll definitely see that that's for uh recently we had some folks come over from england uh taking a look at the center so that was uh that was really neat because we often learn as much from other folks as, as they do when they come too. Yeah, that's great. And how about uh, from 911 calls? Do they come from a separate center into you or are you taking them for your the 911 side of your business? Uh, we do take those. Well, actually, for our 911 contract, it's in a very rural county uh, out towards uh, West Virginia. And uh, they actually have their own 911 dispatch center there, and they dispatch directly to our units uh, for that. But if uh, in any of our municipal in our other municipalities, if it's mutual aid, they'll just the 911 center will just call into our emergency line in our dispatch center. I see. Well, you may, uh, left me for a great segue there, talking about the uh, the communities you serve. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about how you connect with your communities? Sure. Um, so one of the things that we've had great success with is uh, team goals. And so um, 
I think that was, uh, you know, sometimes uh, we learn from trial and error, mostly error, uh, and the, the team goals were a good example of that. But uh, one of the things that we did was we took our, our health system's values and uh, broke those up into goals and asked our teams to work on goals for each value. So one of our values is community. And um, so we asked our teams, we said, what can we do to give back to the community? And uh, they were interested in doing a lot of volunteer work. So yeah. our teams have come together. They've uh, volunteered. We've had chili cook-offs, and the winner got to go cook for the Ronald McDonald House. Um, they've done a lot of work with Habitat for Humanity, uh, some other uh, charities. They uh, helped um, do some repairs to a veteran's home um, up in uh, our, our one of our northern bases. Um, this year, one of the things that uh, they, they looked at was kind of, who else is in our community? And they said, well, our families, uh, our, our friends who care about us and the work that we're doing. So they uh, developed some family safety days uh, to bring in family members uh, to say, hey, this is what a day in the life of our work is like. This is what we do to promote safety. Uh, they got to see the aircraft. They got to speak to the pilots uh, and really just hear more about the program. Uh, the leadership team was there uh, to show our, our commitment. And uh, that's been a huge success too. Um, because they're, they're part of our um, community. At the system level, uh, one of the things that uh, the team wanted to do uh, a few years ago was they wanted to develop and implement a 5K. Um, and so we kind of uh, learned as we went uh, with all the regulations that uh, surround that, but uh, it's a great event and we've done it ever since. And the proceeds from that 5K, we call it the Rotor Run, uh, go to uh, a scholarship for a um, either a paramedic student or a nursing student who wants to have a career in flight medicine. And so we typically raise anywhere from three to $5,000 a year uh, through that event that we put to, towards that uh, scholarship. And uh, that also helps promote our goals of health and wellness um, amongst our team and also uh, in the community. And then I would say probably the one of the bigger initiatives uh, has been uh, volunteering with uh, Haiti Air Ambulance. So uh, if anybody doesn't know what that is, uh, Haiti Air Ambulance is, um, it's a, uh, a, a helicopter service uh, in Haiti. Uh, they, there's Haitian EMTs who work on the helicopter, uh, but they rely on volunteers from all over the United States uh, to come down and help staff uh, that service for them. So uh, our team started doing that, and it was life-changing for them, uh, really, to uh, come back and, and be very appreciative of the training that we have and uh, the tools and the protocols and the medications. Uh, so we wanted to take that a step further and begin an exchange program allowing the Haitian EMTs to come train with us uh, and uh, do some work in our simulation center uh, and uh, different things. So it's that part has been a really great experience. But... I would encourage any program, if you're, you're struggling maybe with employee engagement or uh, how to bring your team together, when the teams come together for the greater good of giving back to the community, uh, it is just a win-win for everyone. Great answer. I, I, I'm truly touched by the things that your teams do. It's, it's very heartening to hear. Dr. Inman, would it be okay if I kind of pulled you in here and asked you a question as far as um, clinical and innovative improvements you've done with the organization in the past uh, past couple years. Could you comment on that, if you would? Yes. Um, so we've been doing a lot of equipment investment recently, and that has been um, video laryngoscopes. I took over 
um, late 2018. So I'm actually just continuing the work of my predecessor, more or less, um, but also adding a few things. Um, we also have upgraded our ventilators recently. We've been adding blood blood products to the aircraft. Right now we have um, packed red blood cells, hopefully, hopefully looking in future at getting um, FFP or some type of clotting factors product. Um, and then also transitioning for the good of our, our ground crew and their longevity in the profession, some self-loading cots and stretchers that would take some of the lifting piece out of the equation into our ambulance fleet. Very good. Yeah. Um, so also in kind of more of the training innovation piece, um, I have been experimenting a little roughly at first, I'll admit, with um, multimodal ways of getting training out to our bases. As Krista described, we have bases spread kind of all over the region, and you're looking at an hour and a half drive from one to another, sometimes more, depending on which base you're traveling to. So um, utilizing things such as podcasts and blog posting and WebEx sessions for training pieces that give me um, the ability to be in multiple places at once when it comes to lecturing myself or that of guest lecturers that I have come in. Um, we also recently upgraded, along with our ventilators, the training on how we um, build competency amongst our providers in dealing with those ventilators. And that has been a combination of a lecture-based and classroom-based curriculum um, that put our providers into the fundamentals of critical care um, that's put on by the FCCS, the Critical Care Society internationally. Um, so we put them through that class and then put them through a simulation as well as some clinical time that they spend individually with RTs to try to build familiarity with events and also a good background for when they perform those transports. And that is probably the first time that we have extensively integrated simulation into our curriculum for a specific training piece. Um, we definitely do sim scenarios regularly with um, different competencies for our providers on the flight side, um, but our ground crews had not really had a chance to experience a lot of that in a more high fidelity environment. So we've been making and definitely taking advantage of the new simulation center that Carillion built just in the last couple years um, that allows us access to much higher fidelity simulation. Great. And so how are you enjoying your experience thus far? I'm, I've got to believe uh, just by what you're telling me there, your fellowship has just been great. So it sounds that way anyway. Mm -hmm. um, so I have been able to, I think, integrate some of the things that I learned in fellowship and taking this job on. It's definitely drinking from a fire hose in terms of the <laughs> amount of things that I want to take on. And um, fortunately, the team is great and has been helping me a lot in those aspects, as well as orienting me to the ins and outs of this job. I see. And do you spend much time actually out on the trucks and in the, uh, the aircraft? Not as much lately. I did a lot in fellowship. Um, our, our fellowship in particular here at Carillion has a heavy clinical medicine focus, meaning we spend a lot of time in the field. And that's not exactly true for a lot of other fellowships. They have a more academic um, philosophy. So um, we did spend a ton of time. Once I started in an attending contract and it had more of a medical director piece to my job role now, I spend more time in meetings than I used to, but um, it's fun. 
That's good. Well, I can, just, <laughs> I can tell by the smile on your face that you enjoy it, and that's nice to see. It really is great to see. Um, Krista, or both of you, actually, how about, you know, safety is always such a huge issue, both air, of course, air, um, but also ground. Have, have you folks uh, done anything to address the changes as far as safety with the aircraft and even with the ground units uh, of late that you could uh, let our listeners know? Uh, I think probably the biggest thing um, that we took on uh, a couple of years ago was um, really drones. Uh, we were starting to see them in our area um, as far as helicopter operations. And I think everybody was kind of asking, um, you know, somebody needs to do something. What are they going to do? Um, and so our teams, we, we said, what can we do? And so uh, we really started kind of some grassroots efforts. Uh, we found a drone operator club in the region and met with them and said, we're not trying to tell you not to be in the air. We're just trying to say, how can we share the airspace? Um, and so we began working with them on that. Uh, we also um, took some of our work to, um, for the LZ command commanders uh, in the region and said, you know, here's some, some thoughts that we have. What are your thoughts? What are you seeing? And then, packaged all of that up and took it to the state to actually get some regulations changed uh, in Virginia. And then it kind of took off from there uh, across the country with um, how we were trying to address the, the program uh, in our backyard. Was the club that you spoke to receptive to having you there? Or? You know, they were. Uh, and um, now uh, we get calls in our dispatch center. Hey, I'm going to be in the area. I'm going to be running a drone. Uh, just wanted to let you know, we get their information, we get their um, uh, location and a contact number. And then if our helicopter's going out, we call them and we say, land the drone. We're going to be in the area and uh, it's great. <laughs> That's incredible. Great. Uh, you enjoy something that uh, many other flight programs that I've spoken to, uh, it comes up as a huge concern, but uh, they haven't found a, an organized way to address it yet. So that's that's really an interesting avenue that you uh, you've taken to to make the air a little safer for both parties. Sure, thank you. So, uh, Dr. Inman, can I come back to you? Sure. So, uh, if you turn on any news channel any night any night at all, you hear about the opioid crisis, and uh, I just wanted to see uh, how it has affected your organization. And what are you doing to try to, to uh, uh, combat this within your own um, area of service? Yeah, um, so I'm sure our struggles have not been necessarily unique. Um, we do have the, I think the unique experience about this round, I should say, of the opioid epidemic, because it's not the first time this has ever happened in this country, but it, this is more of a rural problem than it's ever been before. And so because our small city has a largely rural community that sits all around it, um, we have experienced, our EMS systems have experienced the opioid epidemic in a way that they didn't in the 80s and the 90s when this happened really on a statistical level and the prescription drugs that kind of made all of that worse with this round. So um, one of the things that we were doing to kind of combat the volume that we were seeing is really educating providers who hadn't experienced this before about how to provide life-saving care 
including that of naloxone or Narcan, um, in the safest manner possible. Um, and my big push for training and protocol changes in the past couple years have centered around minimizing the harms in use of Narcan because we traditionally, that was a give it, give a big dose and wake them up fully. And we were experiencing a lot of the horrible side effects that you can get from putting a person who's addicted to heroin or dependent on opioids into sudden withdrawal. And so we have been piloting in the municipalities as well as starting here at this um, more private organization that runs some primary EMS um, with a low-dose Narcan protocol in which we take the standard 0.4 milligram per ml concentration and dilute that um, one-tenth. So giving 0.04 at a time. And the goal in doing that was to titrate. This is given IV. Um, there is also IN and IM protocol dosing. Those are lower than probably most of the standards as well. And the goal was to focus on airway and breathing management and being more slow and cautious with the Narcan administration. And so from the medical director piece, that is probably the biggest portion that um, I have taken on specifically as a community around us. Roanoke has a, and Carillion has a task force in dealing with this in which we've partnered with a lot of the wider community and CCPT has been a part of that. So there's a lot of encouraging them. We have an outpatient bridge therapy clinic that they can get into from the emergency department, and we encourage our providers to bring people to the emergency department who might be interested in getting treatment for their addiction um, as a way of minimizing harm. So those are really the two major approaches that we've taken as being more um, nuanced in our provision of Narcan reversal, um, as well as trying to get these people into treatment. Well, it's uh, it, it's surely a, a great approach, and I will tell you that, um, as I mentioned earlier, the, this it's so sad that this happens all around us. Uh, Chuck, my colleague, who's actually here listening with me today, uh, who just lost his neighbor yesterday to you know to these th to these terrible, terrible epidemic, and uh, it's nice to know if anything I'm good out of this. It's nice to know that professionals like yourself are doing their best uh, to try to combat this terrible thing. So uh, my hat's off to you, great approach. Hey, we're, we're hearing a lot about all the great things you do. Um, what do you foresee as your challenges in the years ahead? I think uh, the industry is going to be very different moving forward is, is my thought. Uh, I know that everyone in the HEMS industry is sort of waiting to see what's gonna happen with legislation. Uh, related to uh, surprise billing or balance billing, um, you know, uh, I think that could be a game changer for, um, you know, what the landscape looks like um, uh, with that. So I, I think that that's going to have a, a definite impact on the HEMS industry. On the, uh, the ground side and possibly the air side too, I know Medicare is looking at uh, some different innovative approaches. Uh, we're trying to get into the ET3 pilot. Um, uh, to be able to transport folks to alternate destinations. You don't necessarily need to go to an emergency department, right. um, but I would look for Medicare to continue on that path and other payers to follow. So I think that will be very different for EMS um, just because, um, you know, that's, that's going to require better relationships. I think with facilities that we've only picked up patients from in the past, we've not taken patients to. Right. So I think uh, I think community paramedicine will continue to grow and evolve. 
uh, in this country, but the, the goal is going to be keep people out of the hospital as much as possible. Sure is, and I think that's an interesting model. Um, did you say you have made formal application uh, at this point? Uh, we're in the process. So. Yeah. Well, well, good for you. I know that's a daunting task. Yeah, yeah. So hopefully we'll get selected. We'll, we'll see. <laughs> well, you'll have to let us know because uh, it's something I've been paying close attention. We get a lot of questions from our clients regarding ET3, uh, and we've always tried to be helpful, but it is truly a very fluid situation, almost changing to some degree daily with, uh, with this. So um, congratulations for even putting your best foot forward and going for it at this early stage. I'll be anxious to see how it all turns out. And we're going to know relatively soon. That's right. <laughs> sure will. Um, the question from our listeners um, was, um, have you, we have one question here. Uh, what do you think about the cost data collection issue that's out there right now? Do you think that's going to affect you much? That thing? Yeah, I'm not 100% sure how that's really going to work. It sounds like it's going to be um, challenging for, uh, I think, agencies to get the data and get that to them. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, uh, it would be great if, um, you know, the cost data shows what uh, we all hope it will, which is uh, what Medicare pays doesn't cover our costs to provide the service. So if that's potential, then I, I will do whatever uh, they need uh, to, to make that happen. And I think that's a good approach. You know, I've had a couple of folks asking me that they've had some pushback. You know, why are we telling the government so much about us? And said, it, at some point, we have to look at this closely because every time we roll an ambulance out of a garage for a Medicare patient, or for that matter, most all patients anymore, it costs more to turn the key on than, it, than what we get reimbursed. So uh, I think it's an important issue in our industry and one that hopefully will pan out to be a positive thing for us. Agree. So uh, I've got a couple more questions, if you don't mind. But, you know, one of the other issues affecting EMS across the country is uh, hiring and retaining, probably retaining is the bigger of the two words, um, quality personnel. Do you have any innovative approaches? And I'm betting you do. Uh, I'll tell you. Sorry, we got a helicopter landing on us right now. It sounds like. <laughs> um, did you plan that? I did. <laughs> uh, so I, you know, we haven't quite found the magic bullet uh, for. Uh, we tried all of the standard stuff, sign-on bonuses. Um, and uh, different things, but um, I think uh, one area where we're starting to maybe see some set success is a grow your own model. Um, so investing in um, some of our employees to get them in, even at the EMT level, and then investing in their education and training to get them up through paramedic uh, in exchange for service commitments, um, and then uh, trying to get them, you know, even if they they end up in the, the hospital as a, a nurse. Uh, there's a, a lot of folks who kind of go that route. Uh, that's okay. We still benefit as a, a system, um, but uh, also trying to grow folks that uh, we can train and even uh, help feed that into our flight program as well. Great. Thank you. Uh, we're about out of time because we try to keep this at around the 30-minute mark. 
Is there anything that either of you two would like to add anything unique about your program? Um, I'll prompt you with one. I, I read a news article in my Google alerts about most recently Curly and clinic uh, took an aircraft and his personnel to help out with the folks affected by hurricane Dorian. Yes. So uh, that was a relatively new experience for us. Um, last year was the first time, and I believe it was, uh, it was hurricane Matthew, but it hit the North Carolina coast. Um, and, uh, so as uh, our aviation vendor, uh, Medtrans, uh, works very closely with uh, FEMA, and so they asked us to deploy uh, resources and assets. Um, and, you know, we weren't 100% um, sure, uh, you know, how does that work and, and things. But uh, I have to say for our crews that stepped up immediately and, and there was no questions about uh, did we have enough people to go, we actually had too many people. Um, they ended up staging in North Carolina for that event and uh, never actually did anything. In this event, um, for the most recent Storm Dorian, we actually sent uh, aircraft down to Florida. Um, so that was quite a distance uh, away. Um, luckily, fortunately, um, the, the teams were mission ready but didn't end up getting actually deployed um, on specific missions. Uh, but the, the dress rehearsals are kind of nice too because you learn every time that you do those uh, events. Uh, we've increased uh, some of our training uh, to make sure people stay proficient with all of the instant command structure and, and those types of things. Uh, but uh, it's uh, the, the teams love it. Uh, it's a very rewarding e experience. Uh, and in talking with other teams that um, have uh, gone out uh, on actual missions and stuff, it is, uh, you know, I think it really recenters you on why did I get in this business in the first place uh, and helping people. Well, I think that's a, that's a true testament to the kind of program that, uh, that you lead, that both of you lead. So kudos to you both. Is there anything in closing that either of you would like to add? Uh, one of the things that I'd like to, if you're willing to throw it out there, we've, uh, if people would like to contact you, what would be the best way to do that? Sure, um, I'm happy to, um, to give you my email address. That's probably the easiest, quickest way. Uh, people can reach out to me, and if it's a uh, question for Dr. Inman, I'm happy to pass those along to her. Right. Uh, the only thing I, I would like to say is uh, we get uh, a lot of questions about the Ames Program of the Year Award from 2018, and um, what uh, I like to tell people is, uh, you know, there's a little secret, which is, we didn't get it on our first try. Uh, and I think that's important because uh, what we did was we applied, we took the feedback, we learned from it, and it was uh, a great review of the program and having um, you know, some opportunities for improvement to work on and areas to focus. Uh, that's what we did uh, little by little with those. So uh, we called ourselves the little engine that could uh, uh, with that. So I would just encourage anyone, um, you know, don't sell your program short. Um, be proud, apply uh, for that, and uh, because if you're still going to get something out of it either way. Uh, and that's where somewhere along the way we realized it was never really about the award. It was about uh, trying to be the best that we could be. So apply, get your feedback, uh, do with that what you will, uh, but it's, uh, it's just a nice way to get um, you know, someone else to sort of take an unbiased look at your program because all of that's blinded, so they, they don't know who the, the program is that's actually applying. Sure. Well, I can't thank you both for taking time from your busy day to spend a few moments with us and our listeners. Um, 
I know I have learned an incredible amount that I do not know. And uh, I try to do my research, but you enlighten me on a number of things. And, and be honest with you, you got to be proud. Uh, we're, we're very proud. So, uh, but thanks, Gary. This is, uh, these webinars are great. Uh, uh, we, I really enjoyed the one uh, last month with uh, Life Met Alaska. So um, keep up the great work. It's this is wonderful. It's, it's fun to do. <laughs> we appreciate it. You're quite welcome. Well, thank you for everybody for coming and listening today. Uh, I do, if, if you'd like to contact me, I'd be glad to give you Krista's email address that you can write her. And uh, thanks for joining us. I wish uh, everybody just a great day. Krista and Dr. Inman, thank you so very, very much. Continued success to your program. Uh, God bless the great work you do. And to all of you, have a great day, everyone. And hey, be safe out there.